Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Enterprise. Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And to make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Sailing frequencies open, sir. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Oh, listen to that music. Oh, it's so good. I love the opening theme to Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I am your host, Jordan Hoffman. And let me tell you, this is one heck of a week uh, in Star Trek. Um, I hope everybody... First of all, Brian is wearing a plaid shirt again. Yes, I am. And uh, he's got a bit of a cold, but that's, you know, we're, we're working on it. I, I think I've had colds or been sick more recordings than I haven't. <laughs> we're giving him rub downs with Vicks Vapo at all times. <laughs> And uh, hopefully everybody listened to last week's show with our friend Jill Pantosi, the, ner- the Nerdy Bird, where we talked about sex robots and Data's sentience. That's a fun episode. This week's is going to be good, too. So before we get to that, though, let's talk about This Week in Trek. Now hear this. So what's happening is big news. Our friend um, Adam Nimoy, who was one of the first guests on this uh, this podcast last June, uh, has a new film coming out. That he's working on. Uh, it is the DS9 documentary. That's sort of been in the works for a number of uh, years. Uh, they've been talking about it. Iris Stephen Bear, the genius, the legend, the mind that shaped modern television, and I absolutely mean that, has been working sort of amorphously on a, uh, uh, a DS9 documentary. I know you're going to say, well, DS9 documentary, how is that any different from, say, all the great extras I've got on my DS9, DS9 DVDs and Blu-rays that I have? And the answer is, A, it's new, so shut up. And B, they've got a great hook as part of it. Part of what makes this uh, movie so nifty is that they got all, well, not all, because uh, Michael Pillar's no longer with us, but many of the great writers of DS9 in a room and they pitched what the pilot of season 8 would be and they come up they stayed in a room all day and they came up with the episode and they talk it out and that I don't I know, now you know everything I know and I know it because there was an Indiegogo campaign and it launched yesterday and uh, sorry the day before yesterday or maybe it was yesterday the point is I was all excited that the next time I would come on the show I was going to talk about it and kind of help out and say everybody's got to go to the Indiegogo page. But in 24 hours, they already reached their goal. They had a $200,000 goal and they've already reached it. Now they're reassessing. Maybe they'll do like a stretch goal. And um, I, I feel confident that we're going to get Adam on the show to talk about it because the Indiegogo campaign is still up for a few more weeks. But it went really, really well at the beginning. And hopefully we'll get Iris Stephen Bear on the show too. I've never actually talked to him for more than eight seconds. And I want to meet him, and I want to meet his purple goatee. I really do. So that's what's happening. The project is up on Indiegogo, and it's been written about a lot. Uh, they, the shoot, they've shot most of the interviews. They've interviewed most of the cast members, and um, they needed the extra dough to help with post-production to license the um, uh, clips from DS9 because it's an independent production. It's the same production company that did For the Love of Spock, hence the Adam Nimoy connection. And... Um, you can read all about it. Uh, it's called What We Left Behind is the name. And it's, uh, you follow it on Twitter at DS9Doc or on Facebook at DS9Doc. And it's uh, pretty nifty. So I, I knew that this thing was happening. Um, I'd heard about it. Um, obviously, haven't seen any, uh, any of it. And then the Indiegogo campaign hit. And I got all excited. And uh, I made contact with uh, Adam Nimoy. And I said, listen, we're going to talk about it on the show. 
And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're gonna need we're gonna need some help promoting it. And then hours later, they hit their goal. So, the power of DS Nine, huh? The power of Star Trek. Man, oh man, it is exciting. But before we um, can, so that'll be soon. We're gonna get him on soon. I hope we'll see. When I talk about Star Trek, though, and DS Nine, there's also the excitement of today's guest, a man by the name of John Billingsley. We're gonna we're gonna um, bring him in. And when I think about John Billingsley, and I think about my beloved Doctor Flocks, certain song comes to mind. It's been a long, long oh yes. This is the season three and four remix. It has a little bit of an extra jangly guitar. I want to say something about this song. Like you, the first time I heard it, I didn't like it. But by the 900th time I heard it, it's my favorite song. Listen to this part here. It gets really good right here. Yeah! This song represents to me the Federation coming together. Captain Archer in the Expanse. I like this version better than season one, season two. I like season three and four better also than season one and season two. I think I'm doing this. Background vocals. Oh, the guitar. It's so good. I am absolutely going to talk to um, John Billingsley about that song. I hope so. Um, but you know, as great as the opening theme is, here's the thing. People like to lovingly make fun sometimes of Faith of the Heart. It gets a lot of talk. You go to conventions and people play and always gets a big laugh. I legitimately love the song. I really do. I think it's a great number and it just brings joy to my heart. But as, as much as we talk about the opening theme... We don't talk enough about the closing theme, also known as Archer's theme. And when the episode ends, and sometimes it ends on a, on a dark note, T'Pol is scowling at us, and then just when we think the show is about, is, is there gonna be another scene? Are we gonna get another scene? We hear. Whoa. And then you gotta wait till next week. Listen to those trombones. Yes. This. Chord structure is so good. But this is the best part. Crank it, Brian. Here we go. Oh, that guitar. Here it comes. Yes. This is triumph in oral form. I am standing up and swaying right now. <laughs> Boom. That's how you end a show. That's how you get them to tune in next week. And I'll tell you, for four seasons we did. For four glorious seasons of Enterprise. And I think, uh, I think uh, for many of us, our favorite part of Enterprise was John Billingsley as Dr. Flox. Dr. Flox. So he's going to come on in a minute. Woof. I'll tell you, Brian, after listening to those tunes, I can sometimes get hungry for dinner. Luckily, I am, uh, I am a member of BlueApron.com. So I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Do you know about BlueApron.com? I don't. Please tell me more. I'm going to tell you about it in about 58 seconds. BlueApron.com is for people who are on the go, uh, who are busy, but they don't want to order out. They want to have their food delivered to them, but they also want to cook. It's a third way. It's a medium. It's like the Federation. You know, you got the Andorians on one side and the Vulcans on the other, and then the Terrans in the center, and that's what Blue Apron is. You get all the ingredients sent to you. It's part of a club. And um, special meals, but you get just the amount you need. So, you know, if you if a recipe calls for, uh, you know, carrots, you go to the store, you buy a zillion carrots, and then you cook with the carrots you need, and then you got all these carrots left over, and they usually just rot in your fridge. Not with Blue Apron, let me tell you. And Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. So this is all very high-quality goods. Uh, and uh, this week's uh, meal, so it's like a plan, you know, it's like a, it's like a, a gig, you know, you order in, and uh, they got, here's what they got this week, they got the cashew chicken stir fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice, uh, roasted pork with apple, uh, walnut and farro salad, blah, 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 noodle soup, they got a lot of great stuff. 
So what you got to do is go to... You got to check it out. Give it a try. Listen to me. I've done it. It's pretty good. Blueapron.com slash engage. Blueapron.com slash engage. You and this is, I'm telling you from the heart, you will love how it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash engage. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Now, I have done this and it's fun. Uh, and the recipe is right there. It doesn't take too much time. And it really is the nice third way between ordering out and cooking for yourself. It eliminates having to go shop. And we're all very busy. And I think you should give it a shot. Blueapron.com slash engage. You get the first three meals for free uh, with free shipping. Give it a try. If you don't like it, you can cancel. All right? So that's my story. Now, uh, we're going to get um, John on the phone next. And I know that he wants to talk politics. The P word. Bum, 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 bum. We have done um, one one and one half politics show so far on this podcast. We had the episode where we spoke to Armin Shimmerman when he had organized the Trek Against Trump campaign. And John is part of that. And that's kind of how I got in touch with him for this week. Um, And then we had the day where we were just recording on Election Day, which is a great little time capsule because my friend, the writer and humorist John DeVore and I, we were all like, well, you know, when Hillary wins later tonight, we and, and then we were joking. was like, hey, we don't know. Maybe Trump will win. And lo and behold. Um, and uh, so we have done one and one half episodes that included politics. And, you know, I, um, you know, some people don't like to hear about politics on a Star Trek podcast. I know because I've gotten those emails. And so we've been kind of quiet about it from then till now. But, you know, Star Trek is a political show, I think. Uh, and it is a show about uh, a lot of the things that are in the public thought process right now about uh, diversity, about multiculturalism, about uh, pacifism versus aggressive uh, behavior, and just about a way, you know, access toward education, toward science. It's a big deal. So, you know, John wants to talk about these, and we're going to let him do it. I'm going to be the voice of neutrality to a certain degree. I make no illusions about being neutral in life, but for the sake of the conversation, I'll be fairly neutral. But if you don't like uh, politics in your Star Trek podcast, there are 37 other episodes to listen to of this show, more. Brian? Uh, This will be 37. This is 37, I believe. Is it really 37? All right, good. Plus some extras that we did from the convention. So there's a lot of other ones to listen to. Maybe this one, you know, listen, you've already heard the Blue Apron ads, so, you know, we... uh, that part's good. But maybe this one's not for you. But but maybe it will. Maybe you're going to want to hear what Dr. Flox, John Billingsley, has to say. And if you don't like it, you uh, can contact him via, you can track him down on social media, or you can email me and I'll forward your uh, rebuttals to John Billingsley. That's fair, right? You think that's fair? I, I think so. I think you'll like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, if, if you if you listen to this podcast that we're about to record with John Billingsley, Dr. Flox, who also is an actor who's done literally 150 other things, and you think that Dr. Flox is full of uh, Perithian bat guano and you want to let him know, you can email me. You can always get a hold of me through Facebook, facebook.com slash engage the official Star Trek podcast. Facebook.com slash engage the official Star Trek podcast, and you can go to the messages, and you can message me privately. I'm the only one who reads that. Or you can put something on the wall, or you can tweet at me at at Jay Hoffman, uh, or you can email me. I'm not going to say my email address, but it's very easy to find. If you go on Twitter, it's right there in my Twitter bio. I'm not going to say it because if you don't have the energy to go on Twitter to my bio and then find it there, then... um, you don't really want to email me. You want everything handed to you. Lazy, I say. Try to find it. Try to hunt me down. So that's how it's going to work. So listen to what John Billingsley has to say. The great Dr. Flox, a great man. And uh, then uh, after that, uh, you can then light a cigarette and go, woof, John Billingsley. That was, like a, that was like a whole deal, what you just said. All right? So let me know. Let me know what you think. Let me. I'm curious about this episode. Let me know what you think uh, more so than all the other episodes. I, I am curious to hear back from you. Um, all right, cool. So that's the story. Get ready for some flocks. We're going to flocks you up in just a moment. Welcome to 
a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. And we're back. Thanks very much for listening. And I have just uh, turned on my communicator. Uh, oh, where is my communicator? Yeah, here we go. I just turned on my communicator and, and calling in from all the way on the West Coast, we have Mr. John Billingsley. John Billingsley is on the line. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> I, hear, I hear tumultuous applause in the background. That is me and that is, uh, that is Brian the Engineer. We're both very excited that you're on the phone because, um, you know, it's... Uh, Dr. Flox is truly one of the, the, the great characters of Star Trek. I mean, Dr. Flox has left an indelible mark on, on those who, who, who oh, watch... Oh, I think it's pretty delible. <laughs> I think it's pretty damn delible. <laughs> I love Dr. Flox so much, and I want to talk to you about Dr. Flox a, a, a bit, but I do want to mention to the listeners the first time that you and I met, which was probably not memorable to you... But it was memorable to me in that it was on stage uh, at the convention at uh, in New York City. Oh, and uh, I was so mean to you, and no, I apologize. No, no, you were I wonderful. You ask any of the questions you wanted to ask. <laughs> no, it was great. But what was funny was right before we, we go on stage, you and I had never met before. I had met some of the other people on the panel. I'd met Connor Trenier before and uh, Anthony he Montgomery. Is they're available. <laughs> uh, it was just, it was you, Anthony, Connor, and um, Dominic, and Dominic, also, also delible. Those are all Do- Dominic and I are the delible ones. <laughs> and I had met the other three, uh, and and dare I even say bonded with them? I knew them. I wouldn't say they Whoa. were. <laughs> Whoa! I didn't bond with them, and I was on the damn show for four years. How'd you pull that off? I just want to say we we each shared a moment collectively and individually, the four of us. So holy cow! Uh, but I had never met you. I'd never met my beloved Doctor Flox, and so we're backstage at the um, Javits Center, and it's busy, and the people are running, and the way these things work to to tell the people at home, uh, it seems very organized on stage. But if the if the panel begins at two p.m. At 1.58 is when everything starts coming together. It's a big last-minute push. So I wanted to sort of shake your hand and just say hello. So I said, oh, Mr. John Billingsley, my name's Jordan Hoffman. I host the podcast. I'm really excited to, to moderate this panel. Uh, listen, if there's anything particular you want to talk about or, you know, just, just let me know. And this is when I pantsed you. Is that correct? <laughs> this is... I did. I, I, were you, I pantsed you. Didn't I pants you? No, you did. I usually try and pants the moderator right before we go on stage. <laughs> Just to kind of kick the thing off in well, the right vein. But what you did was was now I know that when a character is is uh, developed for television, it's not all the actor, John. There's the, the writers. There's the it's producers. Ninety eight percent other people. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to say that. Sixty five percent writing, twenty eight percent makeup, seven percent wardrobe, three <laughs> percent the actor, and one percent crafty. It's, it's a no. It's a to, it's a melange. It's a stew. It's a roux, if you will. <laughs> a but, ri- oh, a rich a rich roux. <laughs> a rich yes. rich roux of of different products of flavors. But, of and, which I was the vanilla. And uh, most people always most people just assume it's the actor. But we know, here's where I'm going with this, Most, but we okay. know that it is the writers and the producers and the special effects also. But the point is, it is predominantly the actor, because you did something that Dr. Flox himself could not have done better, which is out of nowhere, you pull out a two-disc set of Dixieland jazz that you <laughs> said had been like in your basement since 1995. <laughs> And you said, I'm going to give this away to someone in the audience if they ask an embarrassing question. The most embarrassing question. <laughs> right. Actually, because this is something I do at every convention. In, in, in an effort to try and get the audience to become part of the show, I always award a prize to the person who asks the most embarrassing question. And I myself am essentially unembarrassed. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it's fun to try. Um, and yes, that was the, that was first prize. I don't remember what the question was. No, I don't remember the question. Um, and but the, and certainly it was the fact that it was a double disc of Dixieland jazz. It was like where like 
why why did you bring this from Los Angeles to New York? How did you find it? What in what condition was it beforehand? Did the well, person sometimes who... I forget to bring something, so I actually have to just sort of steal toiletries from the uh, maid's <laughs> cart out in the hallway and put them in a bag. Sometimes I will actually kind of like glue locks of my hair together with my own bodily fluids. Oh dear! Oh heavens! Um, that only happened once. Bonnie put the kibosh on that. <laughs> I believe this is my my actual uh, joy about Star Trek of all the things that I. I've come to enjoy about Star Trek. It's the fact that when I get to go to these conventions, I get to practice the art of low vaudeville, which is a, a kind of a deep love of mine. You know, I like to run around the room. I used to chase people out the door if they were annoying me, or alternatively, go out and drag people in if I felt like it was poorly attended. I gave somebody a shampoo once. Um, so far, I've never been arrested. I actually am surprised because uh, uh, really I've, I've broken the law on multiple occasions in every single one of my appearances. Well, a lot of these conventions happen in Las Vegas, and there are no laws there, so that's fine. <laughs> no, I suppose not. But there was one that happened in Oklahoma City once where I think I might have. I think there was a little a little booing because I'm fairly political, and I think I might have uh, I might have crossed a line there in some of my, there's my a, political there's opinions. A, I just boo people back. Like, there's a you know. sheriff in Oklahoma City that's just waiting for you to try and cross the county line one more time. Oh, yeah. Dave Clark in Milwaukee, I'm sure he's like, you know, sitting there just waiting for me to make a Milwaukee County appearance so he can set his goons upon me. <laughs> That's it. I've just lost six people from this podcast. No, no. That, <laughs> listen. That's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. Well, you know, it's funny because we're, uh, we, we were, there have been a few episodes of this podcast that were a little bit political, but I was under the impression that most people who like Star Trek would want to engage in what are fairly, you know, mainstream liberal thought, you know? like well, you I would think that Star Trek, insofar as it's rooted in inclusionary politics and a respect for science, would appeal to a certain kind of person. Right. And by and large, it does. By and large, yeah. it does. I would by and say, large, it does. I, I don't Absolutely. know what the percentages are, but I can tell you that every arch right-wing uh, Star Trek fan, of which there are few, but the ones that are... They're all over my Facebook page. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they. I'm sure they are. I'm sure. I'm sure they are. Well, it's an interesting time we live in, and I'm sorry. I, be, I believe you. Were, you've been trying to make a point. Yes, I did bring the um, Dixieland band. Well, it, yes, and what I liked yeah. about that, um, Mr. Billingsley, that. is that it. It showed a love of uh, the fact that you owned it. Showed uh, a love and interest in all of our cultural nooks and crannies. Uh, the fact that you were giving it away means that you had done with it, but it, but it, it seemed to me like a sort of a, a very Floxian thing to do. Like, ah, this uh, odd little niche of, of music, I will I will listen to it, I will consume it, and I will give it away to someone. So it uh, it struck me as a, as a nice tender moment. Oh well, good, good. There's a certain arbitrariness to the uh, to the choices I make for what I give away. To be honest with you, but, oh, um, you're blowing it for me. Here I was. Uh, what thinking. can I tell you? What can I tell you? You know, I don't know. It could just as easily be in a collection of uh, great polka tunes from the 1930s or <laughs> those you would have kept. Yeah, no, no, oh no, 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 no. So I did. I, uh, I did mention on uh, Twitter that I was going to be speaking with you, and I asked uh, fans if they had any brilliant questions. And um, I didn't get any response, but... Um, and there you go, my career in a nutshell. <laughs> cricket, cricket. No, no, no. I'm joking. But um, one of the things, something that, that somebody brought up, which I hadn't thought of um, really, was um, your character Phlox on Enterprise was the first time that a major new alien race was introduced onto Star Trek in a, in a, in a, in a uh, main role in a very long time. Uh, you know, we, we the, the Klingons, the Vulcans, the, um, you know, the, uh, what do they call them, the Ferengi, all those guys. We kind of knew all them, but out of nowhere come the Denobulans, and, you know, with that, to Star Trek fans, there is some, uh, you know, there's uh, there's some, res I don't want to say responsibility, but it's, it's a big deal, you know? So I was wondering if at any point that struck you, that like, oh, I'm going to sort of create the mold here on a new race that Star Trek fans are going to be thinking about for a very, very long time. Yeah, it was interesting. And, of course, if you're an actor, what you do when you find out you're going to play, uh, I shouldn't say this as if I know what my response was, was, hey, there's never been a Denobulan before. I'm going to be the template. Um, I wonder how much uh, of the Bible exists. I wonder how much they'll let me speak to them about the Bible, what... Uh, 
my species is all about. So I conjured this whole elaborate backstory, and I thought we were a monastic species, that we were sort of in retreat from the world, that there were only nine or ten denobulans left. It turns out we breed like rats, and all of us are married to 19 people. So there you go. When actors try and second-guess what the writing staff is going to come up with, they are invariably <laughs> wrong. Um, Yes, it is interesting. In fact, what I suggested to them at one point was that perhaps, you know, just every time they have a denobulin, it should just be me. <laughs> all the denobulins look like me. Oh, that's um, a great idea. Would it saved a yeah, lot of money also. I had all sorts of great ideas, and, and none of them. <laughs> <laughs> None of them were taken, not a one. Bob Picardo, who was always talking about, yes, you know, I went in and I pitched this and I pitched that, and they did an episode about my idea, and then this episode, of course, that was my idea. It's like, geez, was it me? Did my idea suck? I don't know. At one point, they actually had yellow tape around the front door to keep me from coming into their offices. So I... did you, anyway. At what point did, did you um, learn about the uh, polygamy aspect of flocks? Because that, I don't think it's mentioned in the first episode it comes oh, in no, no I, you don't you don't i think it was mentioned in a night in sick bay i mean actually that was an episode that right. was sort of revelatory for me because although i don't think that was a tremendous fan favorite and so oh i love that one you're chasing a bat around for, you know. i did too i thought it was whimsical and funny i think a lot of fans have expressed a concern or did express a concern at the time that it made the captain look weak that he was obsessed with the dog that he seemed like uh, in some way shape manner or form he didn't have his shit together i thought that was sometimes you know sometimes the fans criticisms of the captain i think are a little unfair mm. Um, from my point of view, that episode had, I thought, a terrific, light, deft sense of humor, and uh, it allowed me to, more than any other episode that had been shot heretofore, with the possible exception of Doctor's Orders, um, is that what it was? No, a Dear Doctor. Dear Doctor, yeah. Um, it, it actually allowed me to kind of figure out how to play the guy, because I didn't really have, I mean, I had scenes, but there weren't a ton of uh, Flox-centric episodes uh, in the first and second season. Yeah, no, those um, those are the first two biggies where where you were the center and um, yeah, and that and that to me was an episode where I got to kind of figure out. I mean, not that I was struggling or anything, but it was a nice melding. I thought of his seriousness of purpose and his whimsical sense of humor. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I think specifically in Night in Sick Bay, it's great because Flocks at first seems like he's all bedside manner. I mean, he's the happiest, fun nice right. guy who's very cuddly but in actual when it came to this one specifically Flox's misunderstanding of Archer's relationship to Porthos I mean it was so alien to him that he didn't have the best bedside manner at first he kind of insulted Archer a little bit no, absolutely. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, this is a guy, and forgive me, you're now going to hear in the background the sound of my meowing cat who has been abandoned on the bed Aww. and wants attention. So we'll just incorporate that into, oh, I hey, can hear Solomon, him. you can hear him. He's 22 years old. No way. Yeah, 22. This is an interesting and, and opportune time for, uh, for me to introduce him because we're talking about uh, animals on sickbay. Hey, boo. Hi, kitty. Well, you're on the air. This is your first, this is his first podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, he's 22. Holy cow. Which is 104 years old. Yeah, no, that's elderly. He just woke up. He's cranky. What is this uh, gentleman cat's name? His name is Solomon. Ah. But he's got many names. He's he's bird, boo, mouse, puppy cat. Uh, I'm a big cat fan. Puppy cat is a good one. (laughs) Puppy cat. He's a puppy cat. Um, yeah, we love him very much. Oh yes, my God. I know, I know. What kind and of cat? He, he's a tuxedo cat. Oh he's my God, that's my yeah. second favorite type of cat. Yeah, he had a he had a sister, not a birth sister, but a uh, a pal who passed away about six seven years ago. A big big fluffy Maine Coon. Oh, those are cat good. Named Leo. Um, so yeah, he's a gem. He had cancer of the paw a few years back, mm. so we had to amputate his paw. Um, and we thought, oh, I don't know, maybe we'll get a little more time. But that was almost four years ago, and he didn't miss a beat. Mm. He's a pretty remarkable cat. Wow. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, you know, I think the thing about Phlox is that, I mean, he came from a, a culture. Uh, you know, this is generally, not to talk politics, but I think this is one of the challenges in America today. Uh, the anger at elites that exists. I think Phlox considered himself, considers himself an elite. Oh, yeah. Not unusual in Star Trek for characters from different cultures to look down their noses at other people. 
And even his sense of humor and his sense of whimsicality and his optimism, there was always a little bit of an element of condescension. And that was, I think, one of the challenges in playing him was to kind of find the line between uh, smugness and kindness. Yeah. Um, one of the challenges in our country to yeah. have a conversation with each other that is, and I'm as guilty as anybody because my passions are inflamed, a conversation that has to be somehow respectful and tolerant and at the same time honest and firm. And we can't mince words with each other about what we believe and what we think. That's a tricky combination of things to muster. Yeah, well, it's pe- particularly when you have to be tolerant of ideas that... Uh when you have to be tolerant of the concept of intolerance. Yeah. Somebody said, and I thought this was a very good way to put it, that we have to be very we, and I speak as a leftist, and I'm, not, I'm completely unapologetic about that. I am a leftist. Um, leftists have to recognize that the, um, the litany of complaints are legitimate. Globalization has definitely caused huge problems amongst the middle class in Western countries. Mm-hmm. And the manufacturing base has eroded in our country, mostly, I think, not because of what the things that uh, Trump says are problematic because of immigration and because of uh, globalization, so much as automation. Eighty-five percent of the jobs that mm-hmm. manufacturing has lost have been lost from automation. But the, the problem is real, and the discontent is real. It's the solution that has been offered and that people who are suffering have grabbed at as a panacea that has to be condemned and condemned passionately. Right, right. I mean, the, the, from 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 my point, well, from a point of view, I don't want to say my point of view, but, uh, you know, they don't make uh, tennis shoes in America anymore. They make them in Indonesia because they can make them for, you know, 11 cents on the dollar. Um, and that's terrible for us in America. But for people in Indonesia, more, it's not so... More to, even more to the point... A steel mill that used to employ 3,000 people, there are still steel mills in America, but they now employ 300 people. Right, right. And I I think that's where we sort of have have lost the idea that one of the things that's happened is mechanization and automation have actually stripped us of our ability to keep our workforce employed, not only at full capacity, but with decent wages. Right. Uh, So it's our our workforce, but the workforce has to a large degree, uh, in addition to mechanization, has gone offshore, and uh, it's increasing the quality of life of someone elsewhere, you know, where there may have been no jobs in Indonesia, now they can make American tennis shoes. And so if you say, you know, let's close down that plant and bring it back to the U.S., suddenly you're screwing those people over now. But I'm saying that I don't think that is anywhere near as much of a problem as people are making it out to be. And I think we are losing sight of what the real issue is, which Mm. is we are going through... Uh, a form of an industrial revolution or the next stage of industrial revolution in which it is simply becoming difficult to find a way to employ all the people who need work because you can have machines do so much more of the job. I That's see what you're the saying. real issue and the yeah. real problem. Look at, look at what, what's going to be the next big technological revolution, I think, which is going to be the fact that you can now have, you now have driverless cars oh yeah that's that's it that's you know? that's a well, real problem because tr- transportation trucking is a huge industry in this yeah, country i mean bye-bye uber bye-bye lyft bye-bye taxi cabs bye-bye trucking bye-bye limousine drivers bye-bye everybody who is employed in in that industry there was an article in the paper the other day about the longshoremen's union there are now 400 i think longshoremen working on the docks in new york there used to be thousands because everything is automated yeah um, these are the kinds of problems that we should be addressing in our world, but because instead we're demonizing immigrants and pretending that it's going to be possible to bring manufacturing back to our shores, um, we are lying to ourselves, and we are allowing ourselves to be lied to by a con man. And I think that's where I, you know, see how quickly I turned it into a political conversation. <laughs> Wait, let, let's back up, because what you say is interesting, because I have uh, so many times on this podcast uh, we have uh, people who are enthusiastic about uh, the future and uh, innovation, and um, sometimes it gets silly. Like last week, we had a long and I feel fairly serious conversation about sex robots and how sex robots may or may not be a bad thing. But let's bring it down a little more to earth, and we're talking about the mechanization in our shipping industry or our transportation industry. Uh, Star Trek would lead you to believe that that's good, you know, you know, yeah. the, the the future, you know, uh, yeah. robots, machines, all these great yeah. things, Trans- yeah. transporter. But it's one of the reasons I'm not a huge Star Trek fan. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. 
I can admire aspects of the Star Trek ethos. I believe that in the 60s, when the show was written, it served a very valuable function, and it was a reflection of the society at the time. Johnson's Great Society, the big leap forward. You know, we just passed the Civil Rights Act. We were going to put a man on the moon, and optimism was the rule of thumb. And that was a, a very important tone and a tone that was reflective of its times. But tone, <laughs> absent of, how do I say this in a way that doesn't sound excessively pejorative, tone in the absence of an intelligent reckoning with the hows, to my mind, becomes sort of uh, fantasia. And I think Star Trek risks sometimes becoming fantasia unmoored from reality. Man is not perfectible. I don't believe in heaven on earth. And the idea that somehow we're going to transcend our humanness and become creatures who are capable of bringing tolerance out to the universe, uh, I find to be sometimes more of an eye roll than um, an honest attempt to embrace humanity as it really exists. Well, there's there's a, my critique of Star Trek. Well, there's a lot to, t- to unpack there. First of all, you could say... Um, you know, if if you if you don't have some degree of optimism, why bother getting out of bed in the morning? Um, but right. o- but also uh, the uh, Star Trek that you were involved in and some of the later stuff on DS Nine and also on Enterprise, I think grappled with those contradictions quite well. I mean, on Enterprise specifically, the so much of the um, show after the Zindi attack on Earth was was fueled by vengeance. You know, in a way. Yes. An odd melding, though, in a way, because you look at the first, the pilot episode of Enterprise, and there was the standard issue, you know, here we are, we wonderful humans, we've conquered hatred, we've conquered et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very quickly, then, it becomes apparent that, well, no, of course, we can't, because no human being can. As soon as we are attacked, we become as vengeful and wrathful and angry as any human being does, because we're human. That is what it means to be human, to be flawed. Yeah. And I don't mean to suggest that the the nature of Star Trek's um, appeal isn't understandable or shouldn't be celebrated. You're right, of course. You need to have, you know, some, some optimism and some hope um, attendant in popular culture. It can't all be darkness and gloom. Mm. I'm just saying that I think sometimes what, what, if I had a critique of Star Trek, is that I sometimes think that there is a, 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 an excessive um, embrace of the, of the song of the human spirit <laughs> to the detriment of the concomitant questions, which is how did we get right. from where we are now? As, frankly, a species that seems to be sinking into a morass of nativism right. and bigotry. Well, there, there's a couple things. One is is uh, perhaps the the thinking is if you build it, it will come. You know, if you make enough Star Trek, then we'll act that way. Um, but also there there are some answers in, you know, how did we get there? In, in You know, when, uh, when we first see the first series um, back in the late 60s, uh, there were stray references to World War III, and the implication was even in the 60s, which, as you say, were, were about optimism, it was like, oh, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So well, Steve Bannon's theory. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to embrace that. No, no. You know? Well, you know, you mentioned nativism, and, uh, you know, there was an episode of the fourth, uh, fourth season of Enterprise, um, the episode called Home, which I watched again just the other day. Um, which is memorable for your character uh, for a, a, a more um, uh, surface reason, which is it's the episode where you got to blow up like a pufferfish. And I absolutely have to ask you about that on a technical <laughs> level, first of all. I do that but, all the time for Bonnie's sexual delectation, <laughs> just so you know. Well, uh, the, the, Bonnie says, hey, do the thing where you blow up like a pufferfish, which is like, oh, Bonnie, I just did that an hour ago. <laughs> six years old. you got to wait another day. <laughs> Um, at, but the, then, you know, I remember the picture, but then it's like, why, why, why did he do that again? And it was because it was after the Zindi attack and, and the Enterprise is back on Earth for a while. Yes. They're doing, yes. they're, you know, they have a, a weekend furlough, I guess, as yeah. Archer is being debriefed. Yeah. And so everybody goes down to a bar and it's you and, and Mayweather and, and, and Malcolm and, uh, and, and Dr. Flox and, um, and a couple at, of louts set a, on yeah. me, and my, my face blows up like a puffer fish as right. a way of 
of warding them off. It's right. Instinctive. It, yes. You get hit by you get hit by 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 racists basically by bigots. Yes. They don't they don't yes. want no aliens in, in in here no more. But yes. what what struck me so much is that the scene that follows, and then because it's a, an episode that's a. Um, Ensemble, the, the 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 focus moves to some of the other stories, and then fifteen minutes later, it comes back to you. You're back on the ship, and you don't want to go down to the surface anymore. And your character says something really interesting, or does something really interesting, which is you basically take the side of the um, the bigots in a way, or you you have a great understanding of why they feel that way, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting because. Um, you know, as as you said, Star Trek, uh, by and large, wants to sort of show us the progressive point of view and, and maybe even shove it down our throats a little bit. And this moment was one where it really played devil's advocate in a way. Like, oh, I could understand why they would do that. And watching it right now, when the big news story is the quote-unquote Muslim ban or travel ban or whatever you want to call it, travel hiatus. I'd be hard-pressed to say that there is a big news story when... There are 20 depredations every day, but yes. yes, it is certainly one of the big news stories. Right, right, it's true. And by the time this actually airs in a couple of days, there'll be five new ones. Oh, yeah, my God, who knows what will have done. They'll have nuked Australia by Thursday next. So I'm just curious, um, having played that scene... And yeah, which it, I don't remember, but I, oh. I remember blowing up like a puffer fish. I'd forgotten the aftermath. Well, you got to trust me. It happened. And, and you play, I totally trust you. You played it with great um, empathy. It was a moment where you under where you where you uh, you know sort of uh, understood why someone would want to instill something like a travel ban, like we have right now. Um, which leads me to you know that question of you know what uh, is is that the biggest thing that's that's bugging you right now about about the current administration is the travel oh, ban no. or <laughs> the biggest thing that bugs me? It's not so much what bugs me about the administration. It's the thing that bugs me and scares me the most about the world generally is that we. We as creatures, and this is sort of, I guess, working my way back to what my questions are about Star Trek. I mean, we as creatures have created civilization. We've created norms and laws as a means to bond us together. And we're not born <laughs> moral, you know. We're, we're babies. We don't even learn how to walk until we're two-ish. Our speaking skills are slow. Our thinking is slow. Uh, most of us die dumb as rocks, let's face it. It's our agreed-upon laws and norms that keep us from destroying each other, because on an individual level, I think humans, while they're capable of great kindness, aren't the smartest tool in the box. Many of us, uh, you know, uh, even the smartest of us are pretty (laughs) second-rate, given all the world's great books and uh, great things to learn. We we know uh, the tiniest fraction, most of us, of what there is to know. What I am concerned about is that we have elected a president, and we see this all over the world, I think, in, in leaders, look at the Philippines or look at Turkey, who are fundamentally saying norms can be set aside. It's all right to be brutal to each other. It's all right to insult each other. It's all right to call each other names. It's all right to be openly racist. It's all right to mock people. It's all right to mock a man with yeah. disabilities for laughs. What does that do? <laughs> To us as human beings. And, and it, it, it's, it's troubling because I don't think that our president would deny that his number one goal in life is to win by any means necessary. To win, yeah. if it means cheating, that's fine. I mean, I feel like, you know, this is a guy who, who is all about the ends justifying the means at all times and would, would, would flout that. Because that Roger, means he's Roger, smarter. He's smarter than you yeah. if he figured out a way to cheat on the test. Yeah, Roger Cohen wrote, who's a terrific writer who writes uh, for the Washington Post, among other newspapers. Um, and by the way, everybody should subscribe to newspapers because the media right now, for all of the fact that it is being derogated by this administration, Jefferson said, I would rather have a free press than anything else. Mm. Democratic government is all well and good. You've got to have a free press. We have to pay for it. <laughs> Americans have to start realizing that we have an obligation to support those institutions that are going to save our country, and that includes a free press. We should subscribe to the newspaper so journalists might make a living so we can actually get these stories covered. Roger Cohen wrote this wonderful editorial in which he said, you know, how do we raise our kids? What's the goal when we have a child? What do we want them to be? We want them to be moral. We want them to be kind. We want them to be respectful. We want them to be good people. 
we have a president, and it is first and foremost, to my mind, a, a repository, the repository of morality in America. You look to your president to be a moral person, which is, I think, what Obama's terrific strength was, whatever his programmatic or policy flaws might have been. Right now, we have an immoral person as the president of the United States. We have somebody who teaches children, in essence, it's okay to cheat, it's okay to lie, it's okay to abuse women, it's okay to rape women, it's okay to violate every trust and every confidence, it's okay to bully, it's okay to, to brag. It, it's essentially good to be bad. Yeah, yeah, that's... And that is incredibly destructive. Well, he comes from, I mean, it's the, it's the ethics of... Um, of, of non-ethics. <laughs> no, it's the ethics of what made him uh, famous. It's it's the tel- it's the um, reality TV. Right. I mean, it's, it's the ethics of no ethics. <laughs> it's chaos, right. but and it, but it's ethical behavior as a strategic imperative. Yeah, it's boiling things down to a soundbite, and it's it's shocking people and saying, well, uh, you know, but people are paying attention, it, and this is something that you see on on TMZ and on shady websites and. Yeah. Reality and television, I, and, that, is, that, is, that is the vibe. You know, the yeah. oh, Jerry Springer show, etc. I yeah. mean, it all stems and from I, that. I, I don't think Trump is the apotheosis of a disease. I don't think he is the guy who is suddenly, you know, like Venus from the clamshell has emerged from the waters to change <laughs> the world. You know, this starts with Rupert Murdoch, who if there is a ninth circle of hell or however many circles of hell there are, there should be one lower than that. And that's where Rupert Murdoch should be. Uh, you know, it's funny because not funny, but, it, you know, you talk about um, president is the repository of our ethics. And I, um, as someone who is also, uh, you know, left wing uh, or liberal or center left or whatever you want to call it, I was certainly not a fan of George W. Bush or his policies, <clears throat> but I don't know that he was an evil person. No, I would agree. I thought I thought he was he was self centered in yeah. a certain way. I thought he was a bit of a dunce, but I think that he had a code. Uh, his his right arm, uh, Dick Cheney, I'm not so sure about. I think I would put him in the not so nice category. But as far as the president is concerned. Well, all um, I can say is that Dick Cheney is standing on Donald Trump's shoulders in hell. Who'd have thunk that would come, you know? <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. There's a terrific book, by the way, by a guy, I think his name is Peter Baker, called Days of Fire, which is about the Bush administration, which is just terrific. And I recommend it even to people who may be, if they're still listening, and I doubt they are, <laughs> are more to the right, because it is a very fair and comprehensive consideration of the Bush administration. And I think it actually paints a very... Um, a very honest and a very um, um, uh, reflective yeah. portrait of well, I, I, re- I read Fra- I read Frank Rich's book and I read uh, Woodward's book also, and they both I mean they basically painted him as a bit of a dunce. But but be that as it may, I don't. It's a different kind, and I was frustrated by him all through his his, his reign. Oh, sure, sure. But sure. this he's is a, a new. He's a true. He's a true believer. Yeah. Uh, you know, at least he believed in something. I mean, I thought what he believed in was sort of pernicious. But I will say what he did not do after 9-11 was come out and say, we are at war with Islam. No, I mean, he said just the opposite. 1.2 billion Muslims in the world, in a world of 8.5 billion people. There are 1.2 billion Muslims. And we have Steve Bannon essentially saying we are at war with that religion. It is a war between Judeo-Christians and Muslims. I mean, that is lunatic. That is absolutely lunatic. Well, it, it's, a, it's a philosophy that's shared by the, you know, the heads of Islamic State, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. the same, same playbook. That's what they're doing, and they're, they are, by all accounts, you know, terrorists and horrible people. And um, we haven't gotten to the point where we're beheading people yet. But it's well, the same goal, philosophy. I mean, their, their goal clearly stated was to incite the kind of reaction in the West that would bring on a civilizational war. And up until now, we have been, for all of our stupidities, and there have been many, the war in Iraq was an act of, of deep idiocy. While I'm talking about foreign policy, <laughs> to have, <laughs> have somebody who, who, for all the stupid things we've done, yeah. is taking the ultimate stupid act and saying, you know what, we are going to essentially endorse, because <laughs> that's what he's doing, to endorse ISIS's fundamental strategic goal. Celebrate it. I mean, this man is uh, <laughs> Donald Trump. <sighs> he has got, he's got a snake brain. It's all short-term tactics and no strategic sense whatsoever. Well, that's how, I mean, that's how it would be... appear right now because it's, I mean, I, I, it certainly feels that way because everything is in such scattershot 
early in the administration and also, like you say, short-term goals just to keep the momentum going of just keeping everybody, you know, chummed, keeping the waters chummed, you know, getting his base excited, getting those of us who dislike him furious, keeping the 24-hour news cycle going. And I don't know what his end game is. I mean, the the other big question, and I'll ask it of you just to get your opinion. A lot of us are wondering: Does Donald Trump forget Bannon? Does Donald Trump, our president, have a master plan, or is he just faking it every day, every hour? He's faking it every day. Yeah. If you ask me. I mean, I think here's the thing: is that this guy is getting uh, credit he doesn't deserve, as if he's some kind of a genius. There are a lot of things. It was a whirlwind of bizarre events. Russian subversion, a week for all that I liked Hillary Clinton, a weak Democratic candidate. Um, the Democratic Party was split in two because of Bernie's campaign. Mm-hmm. There were 16 candidates running in the Republican primaries, all of whom trained their attention and their fire on each other, leaving Trump an open field to move to the far right-wing flank. At any point in time, if McCain, <laughs> who I've come to kind of loathe, had stepped forward when Trump said, I only like people who are legitimate heroes, not people who are captured in war. Right. If he had stepped forward and said, I demand that the Republican Party repudiate this man, he is a liar, he is a draft dodger. Get him out of here. I think that would have been it for him. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, didn't do it. there's a lot of what ifs. You know, the other one, of course, is if uh, Joe Biden's son hadn't died, and if Joe Biden had the, had the fire uh, or the stamina to campaign... You know, what would have happened? I mean, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, on Star Trek, it matters because you can look yeah. at ultimate... Uh, no, all I'm saying is when you look at all the contingencies, yeah. it's huge. I mean, we could go on and on for hours of all the things that had to happen. You know, it was a perfect shitstorm, and Donald <laughs> Trump emerges as the president, and now we think, oh, my God, the man's a tactical genius. He has one <laughs> understanding, which is demonize, find an enemy, and ride the irate min- minority. Ride them with a whip and see if you can split the rest of the people into such, you know, a, a frenzy of factions that your minority can take you to the presidency, and it worked. Yeah. Well, you know what, let's, let's, um, let's, let me ask you a question. What, what, what can okay, one do? One lesson, chaos yeah. theory is not governance. You may win a presidency using chaos theory, but you cannot govern. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well. Well. So I mean, this leads to my question: What What to do now? Let's say, for, like you say, for those who haven't stopped listening, that are that yeah. are on the wave on your wavelength, <laughs> um, what can one do? What are you doing? What What are you other than walking your cat to his litter box? And uh, you know what What can someone do? And and you know other you know what What do you recommend? Well, the one thing I think we have to be honest about is the fact that the Republicans have rigged the game. I mean, gerrymandering means that it's going to be very difficult for us to take the House back. And in 2018, there are more Democratic senators up for re-election in red or purple states than there are Republican senators. So the idea that we're going to kind of uh, uh, sweep them out of power in two years, I think, is not realistic. Four years is our best shot. So for four years, we're going to have to play great defense. And I think what that means as much as anything is that we have to kind of accept the fact that what we're really looking to do is buttress civic society. If you do not have a particular relationship with a charity or an organization that you want to support, a cause you want to support, go out and make one. I think that is as important as all the work that people are doing right now to fight on the political front, for all the phone calls and the pickets and the marches and the et cetera, all of which I do, all of which I support. What I'm trying to do is build my own, um, oh, what do I call them? <laughs> I don't really always know what to, to say about this, because I have been engaged in trying to gather together a, a group of folks who are willing to kind of fight together. I'm kind of loosely calling it push, people unwilling to sit on their haunches. <laughs> and I'm asking people to organize in teams to identify their area of passion, to find out what other groups are doing in that area, to help support those groups and to help promote the message of those groups in order to bring more volunteers and more support to those groups and to those causes. Because I think what we're going to have to do is accept the fact that a lot of the damage that's going to be done is going to have to be um, made up for or defended on a non-governmental front. You know, I think this is a very interesting idea because uh, you're right. I mean, you can march and then the voting day comes, but, but in between... 
you got to, like you say, get off your rear end. But also the, the, the trickle down is it's going to affect pol- the policy is going to affect people and they're going to affect programs and whether it's right. uh, women's reproductive health or education or even things that may not seem essential to day to day life. Like, oh, I don't know, uh, music programs in public schools. Exactly. exactly. If that's something that you're passionate about, it's something that you're going to want to do. And it's exactly. going to it's going to get you motivated. And also and I think this is a part of important thing. It's going to be fun, and uh, it's going to be fun for you, and it's going to, exactly. it's going to be something that's going, rewarding. You're going to feel like you are accomplishing something, which is the other thing I worry about. I think it's important and imperative for us as citizens to feel like the work we're doing has, I don't want to necessarily say a measurable effect, because good works, it's hard to measure the results sometimes of good works, but uh, donating food to a food bank or organizing a food drive or helping to mentor a kid who doesn't know how to read or helping to find a way to get more school supplies into a school or helping to, you know, putting in your volunteer hours at an environmental organization or driving a woman who wants to have an abortion to her abortion clinic and then driving her home afterwards. All of those are deeds, actions, and there is a payoff. And I think that's important. I think people need to know that there are payoffs to the work they do. And that's not always easy to measure when you march or picket or make phone calls, particularly these days when so many of the phone calls aren't being picked up at the various congressional offices. Yeah. Well, you know, that's Um, a really interesting thing uh, that you're bringing up, because I think that right now, it being early in the administration, there are, on the news, there are these massive marches, and that, that will dwindle in time. It may not. Well, it may not. You never know. I'm not sure that it's going to dwindle, to be honest. One of the slogans is, we we can do this every weekend, right? Yeah, believe me. I I will say one other thing, uh, which is that, to my mind, the math is important. One of the things that I think we forget is that 42.7% of Americans eligible to vote did not vote. So we're talking about, what, 57% of the population that voted for either Hillary or Donald. Of that, um, 10 million more people voted for a candidate other than Donald Trump. Donald Trump basically has the support of a quarter of the country. And of that quarter, I would say half held their nose and voted for Donald Trump. So we can't invest (laughs) too much of a sense that Donald Trump speaks for or represents a huge faction of the American population. I think that's wrong. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. I mean, and, and you can dicker around of, like, the people who stayed home. Yeah. Did they? But my follow-up, my follow-up yeah. point is this. I'm less concerned, as I think many people are saying, about going out and trying to figure out what's wrong with the disaffected Trump voters and bringing them back into the fold. I don't want to ever have a rude conversation with someone if I can avoid it. And I definitely believe that a lot of people who voted for Trump uh, voted against their own interests. And I think that's something that's going to be proven over the long arc of time as they feel it in their pocketbook and as they see the pernicious effects of Trump's legislation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm more concerned about that 42.7%. I'm more interested in finding ways to see if we can get people who are not political to join in to what's going on in the world via non-political means. I think if you get somebody to volunteer for a soup kitchen or for um, an environmental organization to do something like plant trees, if they see that program is at risk of being killed by the government, I think they begin to get politicized. As important as it is to attempt to get people to knock on doors and ring doorbells and hand out brochures and be overtly political, I think it's equally as important to try and figure out a way to get people who are not ever going to be interested in the, the day-in, day-out mechanics of politics to recognize that the things they love are at risk of being taken away by this administration. I think that's a really interesting point and one that not a lot of people are mentioning, that, that these touch points with what people's passions are when they find that they can either be saved or yeah. brought back from the dead with a vote might change things. So I let like. Say, uh, let, yeah, uh, let me say one other thing because yeah. you've got me going. Oh, this is what I, this is what I have been working on. I think it's imperative that people work in teams. Uh, teamwork is one of the things I do like about Star Trek. <laughs> I do like the fact that Star Trek is very much about the nature of a way a team bonds. It, it, individuals trying to figure out how to stand up and fight. Uh, there's so many things that squelch individual drive, 
when you're working on a team, you have obligations to the team. You have obligations to do your homework. You have obligations to show up at the meeting. You've made a promise to people who are going to be your friends and your colleagues. Uh, a team-centric approach, I think, is really imperative to keep people at the work. So you're asking me what I would advise people to do. I would say get specific about what you're passionate about. Try and recognize that there's one thing for you that is more important than everything else. As hard as that is in a world in which everything is on fire, you can only piss on one fire. <laughs> you can't be pissing on every fire. Yeah. Find some people to work with. Find out who else is doing what you want to do. Uh, see if you can help them in their efforts. And make your mission to go out and try and get other people involved. So build the team. Yeah. Build the team. And the other thing is, and, and you know, for, and this thing that I think about a lot, the so-called red states and blue states, if, you're, if, if someone's listening to this and is saying right on and I want to do it, but, oh, I live in, I live in Georgia, I live in Mississippi, um, they're, they're out there, you know, because, and here's how I know, because I live in the bluest county in the bluest state. I live in New York City. I live in a very ethnically diverse, wonderful neighborhood, and I encounter racists all the time. I, sure. They're out there. They're my neighbors. Yeah. And so that means there are red state people in my blue state. And that means there are blue state people in your red state. I hate, see, I just said I hate red state, blue state. I'm using that terminology. But you know what I mean. No, there are, there are like-minded people everywhere. Yeah. And I, even I know exactly what you mean, and I couldn't agree more. And I think it's also important in trying to build your teams, particularly if you're looking at an issue-oriented approach, it, it, just pulling something out of a hat, um, food security, trying to make sure that people don't go to bed hungry. That's something that doesn't have to be partisan. If there's a way to bridge the divide between people, it's to find those things that might actually be nonpartisan in orientation and see if you can perhaps... That's not going to be everybody's racket. Right, Some people right. might want to develop a team that's built along tactical lines. It's following the Indivisible campaign. I'm sure that most of the people who are listening to this by now, everybody else is split, uh, knows what I'm talking about. Indivisible is working pretty well. You know, a team could be devoted to f practicing the, the indivisible model um, locally. A team could be working on finding creative ways to protest, such as the cough-in at the Trump Towers restaurant. <laughs> you, can think, you can think in any number of different ways, either tactically or programmatically, find people you want to work with. If it's programmatic, it might allow you to actually reach outside of the partisan boundaries. And you're absolutely right. That can happen in Kankakee. It can happen in Dubuque. It can happen in Tupelo. It can happen anywhere. And it's also what is necessary for people who are living, I think, in red states to feel like they're – because this is one of the things that I think has is, is happened, is I think that there's a certain amount of defeatism. You feel like if you live in Mississippi, oh, well, I'm screwed. There's always going to be Republican governance. I'm never going to be able to get a guy to actually, you know, represent my point of view in my local, uh, my, my legislative district, my state senatorial district, much less in the federal government. I give up. It, fighting that feeling of defeatism demands you find other people to work with. It means you have a specific cause that you're working for with some measurable results that you can seize on and say, look, we made a difference, and then you grow it, and you grow it, and you grow it. Right. And pretty soon you've politicized yourself. And if you're single, you probably meet some... Uh, oh, you're going to get laid all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my God. And that really should be, I think, what we want to make sure we close with, is that if you want to have sex, one, yeah. be a Democrat. These um, um, marches, these, <laughs> these marches that you see on TV. Oh my God! I know. The I after parties seven are... times at the uh, even on the march itself. <laughs> I just kept getting pulled into little nooks and recesses, yeah. and people would have their way with me, and yeah. then they would kind of spit me out again. <laughs> it was it was exhausting, frankly. Um, of course, I'm a minor television celebrity. I can't <laughs> say that that's going to happen to everybody. But, John, um, John, before we hang up, what, what, what do you got in the hopper next? Where, where can we see you next? I know that you are currently uh, the movie 20th Century Women you're in, which is a great movie. Oh, I have a dinky-ass part. I'll be honest with you. I am taking a, uh, a form of a leave of absence from acting to concentrate on this work. Um, our country's at stake. Our yeah. world's at stake. Uh, you know, I mean, refugeeism isn't going away. If you believe that climate change is real, the fact that what's going to happen in the world means that in another 20 years we might be looking at, you know, the entire eastern seaboard underwater, 
uh, I mean, I can go on and on and on, and I won't, because I realize I'm sounding like a broken record. But to my mind, anybody who can give more of themselves needs to give more of themselves. The, this is, a, this is a, a, a hinge moment. Well, I like, I like that you're not just talking the talk, you're walking the walk. Well, listen, John, thank, thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course. Um, and uh, this was a great conversation. I think that uh, even the, the few right-wing Star Trek fans might uh, have enjoyed this conversation. And, and we'll, I'll, I'll hear it if they didn't. Oh, you, oh yeah, yeah, you'll hear it. You'll and hear it. Uh, hope and somehow to... I'll hear it, too. But that's all right, you know. Cool. Well, listen, right. um, we'll keep our eyes open for you. And uh, until that time, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see you. We'll see you on the Enterprise. Look to me in the heavens. Look to me in the heavens. A little star that shines above carries just a little bit of John Billingsley. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.